A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, September 21st. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi's LGBTQ community is recognizing the 12th anniversary of the repeal of what they call an anti-gay military policy. Then a new book details how black quarterbacks revolutionized professional football. Plus, this week marks the 40th anniversary of the Mississippi Agriculture Museum. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. It's been 12 years since former President Barack Obama overturned the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. It restricted LGBTQ members of the military from discussing their sexual orientation. The policy was enacted in 1993 and officially stood repealed September 20th of 2011. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with veteran Chris Wilborn, who joined the Mississippi National Guard. He served as an Army medic right after the policy was repealed. Wilborn says change was coming, but it was still difficult for him. Actually got to hear the first wounded veteran who's also openly gay speak at Mississippi State back in 2011 and don't ask don't tell had just been repealed at that time I knew that I had always wanted to get into the military but I I didn't know how I could or this or that and then I just found out about DADT was was repealed and so I actually joined in December of uh, 2011 right at the end of December it was a it was a tough time, but a good time to, to get into. Uh, there was real change coming throughout the army and the military itself, uh, and you could tell there was a lot of people hesitant. But uh, it was a good change, definitely overall for the military. This is such a big cultural shift, not just for the military, but it's kind of a reflection of how the nation in general viewed the LGBT community. As someone who identifies as bisexual myself, what I'm really curious to know is what parallels did you see when the military made this decision to repeal this act? How was the rest of the world responding, do you think? You know, I think the the biggest thing was the first time we saw some major cultural change in federal policy that was not just, well, we recognize you're here, but uh, the first time we're giving true, genuine freedoms, equal right to part of uh, the LGBT community. 
Um, I think that that was one of the biggest things that we saw out of uh, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and which I think continued with really further policymaking uh, through the years uh, to come soon after to be able to extend even marriage equality within four years, I believe, after Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. So there was so many several cultural shifts over, gosh, the past decade. It, we're, we're talking about things that have changed so recently, and it feels like it's the norm now, but we've all been alive to see these things be a lot more controversial. Uh, something else that I'm really curious about is what experience – is you had as a queer identifying person in the military then that maybe you wouldn't have now, if that makes any sense. Even though Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, I still had a, a really uh, tough time. I was bullied in basic training in my advanced individual training, AIT, where I was learning to be a medic. It was more open minds. I don't know if that's just because it was a medical facility and, and people were a little bit more open about the idea. And it was a year later, I guess, to, you know, they, uh, the way my drill sergeants would always refer to it as uh, the new army, they would say. Uh, we can't say these things now because we're in the new army. And so it definitely was something I was not out and open in my basic training unit. But uh, when I got to my National Guard unit, I was out. I was the first openly uh, gay soldier at the time in uh, an all-male unit. I definitely had my struggles there. I I faced a little bit of discrimination uh, from some of my superiors. At times felt uncomfortable. But overall, it was a, a great experience and taught me a lot. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. So I can't look at those few negative parts I had to deal with, I guess, while I was at my unit and let that overshadow, you know, all the great things that I did take away from the military. Chris Wilborn is a veteran of the Mississippi National Guard and served as an Army medic. Active engineer Savion Spann joined Vicksburg Army Reserve in 2018 while living in Jackson. That was following in his parents' footsteps. He says Don't Ask, Don't Tell had been repealed for several years when he joined, which allowed him to approach enlistment as a normal part of life. Joining the Army Reserve, I actually had no worries about how I would be accepted. And maybe that's due to the fact that they are more welcoming to a newer generation of soldiers. So when we do go to basic training or we do have all these classes, they go heavy on acceptance that they have, how diverse they are, how uh, how they do believe in equality. They bring in third-party professionals to come in and speak to us as a whole. And not only about just those important diverse matters, but they also give a lot of emphasis to suicide prevention and drug abuse. So, I mean... Just all of those classes are intertwined within the basic training curricula. So I was never concerned about if someone were to find out I was gay or like after we exchanged social media, um, when we get our phones back at the end of the 10-week basic training course and we're following each other, you know, guys are talking about their wives or their girlfriends. And I wasn't dating anybody at the time, so I never had like told them I was just outright gay. But we did have a few um, LGBT uh, members that were serving in my basic training unit who would talk about, you know, they were seeing somebody or they would get letters from their boyfriend. And there was no, like, I guess, forms of 
harassment or insults thrown their way. They're just like, oh, okay, you know, all the soldiers that are coming in now, especially, I guess, in my class, because it was an officer-based class, uh, a lot of these people have gone to college. They've been exposed to, I guess, you know, a diverse community and um, their upbringing. There were no issues um, about a person being gay when I joined. Do you think that law being repealed changed the culture over time to where your experience is, is more of the norm now, that it's a little bit uh, later in the timeline? Right. I think I think so, because when something happens, you know, the Army is like one of the first to adapt and enforce those changes. So even when it came to, I don't know, getting the COVID vaccinations a couple of years ago, they were like one of the first ones to push that through their ranks. From that, from this new generation who started in 2018 and you know still in for the past five years, I do think they do a really good job incorporating the inclusion of, of others. Gotcha. And you told me earlier something interesting that your parents served. Did they did they have any advice for you as someone who identified as LGBT on on how to go about it, or did they not even think about that when you told them that you wanted to serve? I don't think they even thought about it. Um, I came out to my parents in college. Uh, I think it was a very, it was a very good experience. I came out when I was in my first relationship, so they just take it all seamlessly. Like um, I've never had to worry about my identity in my household, which is really nice and something I guess I could take for granted, um, especially hearing the the stories from my peers and my friends, other queer people. Savion Spann is a member of the Army Reserve and is currently stationed in New York. Coming up, a new book details how black quarterbacks revolutionized football. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you aren't near a radio, you can still listen to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. You can download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone or listen online at mpbonline.org. Why listen to Right on Mississippi? I got on the bus and I said, well, all right, I'm going to straighten him out. And I went to the back of the bus and I said, Charlie, don't you touch my... I didn't even get sister out. My face began to beat his knuckles up very badly. <laughs> right on Mississippi, a podcast. Download now at mpbonline.org from the Mississippi Book Festival and MPB. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. This was the first year two black starting quarterbacks faced off at the Super Bowl. Why did it take more than 100 years of NFL history to get here? That's the subject of John Eisenberg's new book, Rocket Men, the black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football. Joseph King with the Gulf States Newsroom talked with Eisenberg about the grueling journey of black players and coaches in the league. All right, I'm, I want to start off right here, really from the beginning. You've written books about baseball, football, and I saw even Equestrian. Uh, what inspired you specifically to write this book focused on the black quarterback? I remember going to the uh, Winter Olympics 
uh, in Calgary, we're going back here, but like 1988, and there was a great black figure skater, Debbie Thomas. She wound up winning, I think, a bronze medal. And uh, so I just wrote columns about her. She was an incredibly graceful person to talk to and a great athlete. And I wrote about her. So I come back from that and I've gotten horrible mail, horrible mail from just racist mail from people for me, you know, picking on her because she's black, picking on me. I'm Jewish and and just awful stuff. And if that doesn't get your attention, nothing does. And uh, what I'm what I'm trying to do with it is shine a light on the fact that something happened in the NFL and for decade after decade, black quarterbacks could not get on the field. And, and the reason was just pure racist ideology, denial by stereotype. And it happened and it, it happened until more recently than people realize. And so my goal with this book was to put it out there and to say, you know, let's, let's not quibble about any facts here. Here are your facts. Uh, why the title Rocket Men? Where did you get inspiration for that? Number one, uh, I thought it, I used it as a compliment, but I also wanted to use it as an homage to the guys that didn't get a chance. This is a story of opportunity, and it's oppor- uh, opportunity denied for many decades, and then finally opportunity granted uh, by a white establishment. It's really important uh, to understand that there were guys that just, all they lacked was the opportunity. They had the talent, and so uh, they were rocket men in their own way. You know, many times black quarterbacks were told they weren't ideal quarterbacks for the NFL for a number of reasons, you know. Uh, but why do you think the bar was higher for them? You go back to the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the, the NFL is an entirely white establishment. The, the owners, still the case, uh, coaches back then, all white, general managers, all white. And coming out of that era, the 50s and the 60s, there was a distinct lack of trust. Uh, they trusted black athletes had started to do that uh, coming out of that era when the league was segregated and they reintegrated. However, by that point, football had modernized. Offenses were getting sophisticated. There was a lot of passing and changing plays at the line. The playbook was getting fat. And uh, these coaches just said, we, we don't, you know, I'm not sure a black quarterback can handle the, the load mentally. That's what they believed uh, based on nothing because none of them had played and had a chance to prove that it was wrong. I saw uh, you mentioned Ozzie Newsom too. I know he's not a quarterback, but yeah, anything specifically that he did? He was a quarterback as a kid in Muscle Souls, Alabama, and he tells the story of how he went to tryouts. I think it was eighth grade, and he was already a good athlete. He goes to tryouts, and the quarterbacks are lined up in one place, and the receivers are lined up in another line. And he has to make a decision. He decided not to play quarterback, even though that's what he'd always played on the sandlot. He didn't want to do it because he knew, he knew what was going on. It's like, well, I'm a big, strong kid. I'm, I'm, you know, I might be able to go somewhere in this sport, but if I'm a quarterback, I'm going to have to change positions. It's going to be a hard road. So I'm not going to play that position. And he became a receiver and uh, uh, a tight end and wound up playing at Alabama and then uh, going to the Cleveland Browns, and he's in the Hall of Fame as a player. What did the older players you interviewed think about the state of things today? They certainly wish they were making the money that today's players were. Uh, That goes without saying. But they think about the guys that didn't make it. Uh, Okay, from uh, Alabama, Conridge Holloway, okay, is a player, went to high school in Alabama, and, uh, you know, we're going back into the 70s, and uh, was, I believe, the fourth pick in the baseball draft one year incredible athlete. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, Bear Bryant told him there's not going to be a black quarterback at Alabama. I think this would be 1970, uh, around there. And so he goes to Tennessee, and he's the first black starting quarterback in the SEC. The, the quarterbacks from that era say, guys, Conridge Holloway in today's football would have been lights out. It's perfect for him. However, uh, in 1975, I think when he was eligible for the draft, he went in the last round as a defensive back and went to Canada because he wasn't going to play quarterback in the NFL. John Eisenberg is the author of the new book, Rocket Man, the black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football. John, again, thank you for talking with me today. Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate the time, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed it. The go- Excuse me. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Coming up, the Mississippi Agriculture Museum is celebrating 40 years of operations. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Connect with the people looking to connect with you. Become an underwriter with Mississippi Public Broadcasting. For more information, go to mpbonline.org slash more slash underwriting. Why listen to Right on Mississippi? Now you know, when I talk about my mama, I talk about my mama. I don't say my mother. Mm-hmm. I say my mama. But if I get out here to fix my mouth and say this book represents me and my family, my ancestors, I better get it right. Right on Mississippi, a podcast. Download now at mpbonline.org from the Mississippi Book Festival and MPB. What can you do with the MPB radio app? Listen live, hear local news, view the schedule, make a contribution, listen to shows on demand, and interact with social media. Get the app for your smartphone now. Hi, Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. Please join me and my colleagues for the Mississippi Arts Hour, where we have in-depth conversations with different creative Mississippians. That's the Mississippi Arts Hour, Sundays at 5 on Think Radio, or download it as a podcast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Forty years ago, the Mississippi Agriculture Museum opened its doors in Jackson, a way for people to see what life was like for many folks in rural areas prior to industrialization. Our Kobe Vance speaks with Agriculture Commissioner Andy Gibson about the anniversary and what the museum has to offer in the modern day. It would not exist if it were not for the vision of former Commissioner Jim Buck Ross, and uh, it appropriately bears his name. Uh, It was dedicated September the 20th, 1983, so we're at that 40-year mark. And uh, I can tell you personally, I was uh, among the first group of kindergartners that walked across the bridge the first time to visit the Ag Museum, and it opened up a whole new world for me in terms of the history of Mississippi agriculture and uh, to appreciate our Native American uh, uh, forebears here in this this state and then our pioneers that came and who uh, who sawed the first logs here in Mississippi, and uh, until today, modern agriculture and the modern aviation uh, industry that the uh, Ag Museum is now uh, home to. So we, we have a great treasure here that highlights in a very special way, in a unique way, Mississippi's largest and greatest industry, which has always been agriculture. 
what message would you like for Mississippians to take away from walking through the Ag Museum, whether it be the indoor exhibits or walking outdoors where they have all the buildings that represent different aspects of life in Mississippi? Well, you know, uh, I would say that Mississippians should take away the rich history of agriculture in this state. It is because of agriculture and forestry that our state uh, began and that we continue to thrive and to uh, exist today. Agriculture not only provides uh, food, fiber, and shelter for the, the world, but it does for us right here in Mississippi. And Mississippi has such a unique agriculture uh, I think people can take that from the museum's uh, displays and exhibits. For example, we're the state that invented the, the catfish industry, and uh, we are still number one in catfish. And the diversity of our, our agricultural production is highlighted uh, at the Ag Museum, uh, all the way from poultry to uh, beef cattle to our specialty crops like blueberries and uh, all the great history of Mississippi agriculture, the rich heritage that we have and that we get to pass on. I wanted to go into some of the things that the museum has to offer that are unique. One is the cotton gin. What do Mississippians get when they get to go visit that? And can you explain a little bit about the significance of having that at the museum? Yes, we've got that uh, that classic uh, cotton gin that is the oldest operating cotton gin of its type in the United States. Uh, we have children who come here from all the schools around Mississippi. I think on average we have about 125,000 visitors who will come through. Most of them have never uh, lived on a farm. Some may have been on a farm, but definitely none of them have seen that classic operation of the, the cotton gin and uh, the, the process that it goes through to take that, that cotton, which is uh, a cotton bowl, which is full of seeds, and then to mechanically separate that. And there's no way to describe it in words. You've got to see it to believe it. And uh, that invention itself draws a huge crowd at, at our Harvest Fest every year. We'll be firing it back up. We we just sent that uh, engine off to be rebuilt, and we're getting it back right now. It's being reinstalled, and we'll have it running in November for people to enjoy once again. Over the past few years, there's been a growing number of events held at the Agriculture Museum. How do you think that, that this is a great way to use the space for things like the Pickle Festival? Or I know this weekend coming up, we have a, a Latin festival. Yeah, we have been partnering now with the, the several museums in the Lafleur Museum District. And in that little that little corner uh, there on Lakeland Drive, you've got the uh, the Natural Science Museum, the Children's Museum, so many uh, great attractions right there. So working with them, we've been able to bring uh, new activities, new events here, and it has become a hub for these types of activities. Um, we, we we love to host events like the, the Latin Festival and the Pickle Festival, things that bring people together. And uh, it's sort of a miniature version of what we do at the State Fair, getting everybody together around a common theme. And uh, what better theme than to have Mississippi agriculture right there uh, in the center of it. These buildings uh, have been around for 40 years. We have made over the last five years a lot of upgrades to them, improvements to them. We've had to put new roofs on several of them, but they look better and we've improved the lighting. And the last thing I'll mention is today, actually, as we have this interview, uh, we have just begun the renovations of the church that was uh, the, the uh, old church that's been around since 1857, actually, is the date of that church. We are renovating that. So with these renovations, we're having more interest uh, among the public in terms of having events here at the museum. 
I know on that same note, we had a sad event a few years ago where the barn where the animals were kept did catch fire. What's it been like having to recover from that and building up a new exhibit where I'd say it's probably better than ever? It really is. You know, the fire was a tragedy, uh, but from those ashes, uh, we have been able to rebuild a new children's barn, an exhibit barn, and uh, it was all paid for by the insurance and uh, had to get on the phone about four years ago and and told them if they didn't get it approved, I was going to fly out to Atlanta, Georgia and be at their door on Saturday morning. And they came around and got it approved, and we got them rebuilt. And uh, those exhibits are a highlight. And as part of that, uh, we built a little side building there that a lot of birthday parties are happening. And it's a way for all Mississippians, and especially our children, to reconnect to agriculture in a way that they may not be able to do it in any other venue. Andy Gibson is Mississippi's Agriculture Commissioner. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.